The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. It was an improbable romance. He was a country boy. She was from the city. She had the world at her feet, while he didn't have two dimes to rub together. Some scenes from The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks. Let's start with some statistics. In the United States alone, close to 3 billion books are sold each year. And in spite of what you might think, if you are a listener of the History of Literature podcast, not everyone is reading Chekhov or Kafka or Proust. According to a recent survey, 47% of respondents said that they had read at least one mystery, thriller, or crime book in the past year. That's the highest genre by quite a bit. Romance novels came in at number two at 27%. And yet, what do people buy? Romance novels, they buy them by the truckload. Let me give you some sense of the scale. Americans spent about $80 million on horror books like Stephen King and his crew. That's above literary fiction, by the way. That's not going to be on this list. Uh, Americans spent a lot more on science fiction and fantasy. Combining those two categories takes you almost to $600 million, or about seven or eight times what people spent on Stephen King and his fellow horror writers. Americans spent 700 and some million dollars on religious-slash-inspirational books. That includes how-to books and so on. And they spent... Just a little more than that, $730 million or so on crime and mystery books. We're now at almost 10 times what Americans spent on horror books. And as I said, literary fiction isn't on this list, by the way, including classics. They're further down, less than $80 million. So here we are, $730 million on crime and mystery stories, which was the most commonly read genre. 47% of respondents had dabbled in crime and mystery books. That's a lot of money, $730 million, but that's not number one. 47% of Americans read at least one, but that wasn't enough to make it the number one because people who read the number two category read more of those books, a lot more. In a single year, readers spent $1.44 billion on romance slash erotica. Here's another way to look at it. Amer- uh, Amazon's categories for ebooks. The number one category, romance, contemporary. Number two, literar- literature and fiction, contemporary fiction, women. It's a closely related category. Number three, romance, 
new adult in college as a subcategory. Number four, literature and fiction, contemporary fiction, romance. You sensing a pattern here? Number five, literature and fiction, subcategory women, subcategory romance. So the top five are all romance novels of one sort or another. Uh, Six was coming-of-age books. Seven, romance, mystery, and suspense. Eight was science fiction and fantasy. So the first real entry that's uh, not romance or coming-of-age. Nine is literature and fiction, genre fiction, erotica. And ten is literature and fiction, women, mystery, thriller, and suspense, women sleuths. Something's going on here, people. I know we've asked the question, is literature dying? Well, that might still be true, but romance novels, they are alive and well. Listen to all those romance novels that are on there. And there are some subcategories, not in the top 10, but that could be. There's fantasy, historical romance, paranormal romance, even science fiction romance. But what is a romance novel? How do we define it? What features does it have that, say a book by Sylvia Plath or Jonathan Franzen doesn't have. How does that affect the experience of the reader? Where did all this get started, and where do we think it's headed? All that, plus a little bonus audio today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Romance novels. We are kicking off a new Thursday theme for this month, which is going to be all about genre. Today, we look at the queen of genres, romance fiction, which is the undisputed heavyweight champion of genre. The queen, the heavyweight champion, whatever metaphor you want to use, it works. The one that dominates, you know what I mean when I say romance novels, right? You know what the cover looks like. You know what the shape of the book is. You probably remember seeing them at your grandparents' house or on your mother's shelf, on your father's. Could be. Not trying to make assumptions here. It's the kind of book that gets read on a train or on a bus or at the airport or gets tossed in a bag and taken to the beach. Some handsome man on the cover. Maybe a woman with beautiful hair. Maybe he's behind her, kissing her shoulder. Maybe her head is tossed back in passion. Maybe there are horses involved, or if we're traveling through history, castles or bedrooms with gauzy curtains blowing in the wind. But of course, that might just be the stereotype of a romance novel. We're going going to dig a little deeper than that today. We're also going to have a few other genres on our list this month. I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of genre, of the branding, of the readerly expectations, and the way authors get to play within those expectations and subvert them or find new angles on them, update them. I'm not a snob about any of this. I hate snobbery, as you hopefully know by now. And if you're looking for a value judgment, you've come to the wrong place. I'm not here to argue that romance novels are better or worse than any other kind of book. I'm not here to advocate for you to read them or not read them. If you want to hear that, tune out. What I want to talk about instead are some features of romance novels, the key figures in the history of the romance, the difficulties people have when they try to pin down what a romance novel even is. I find that kind of fascinating, actually, because of what it says about both romance novels and literary fiction. 
but I think we have to take these on their own terms. In this, I'm thinking of film criticism and the task that someone like a Roger Ebert might have had. He had a scale for his movies, four stars. Every week, that's what had to go into the newspaper. Four stars. Is it one star, two stars? And he always said, four stars is easy. It's easy to give a movie four stars. One star is easy. It's easy to give a a stinker, a stinkeroo, one star. But two stars is hard. 2.5 stars is hard. Where do you, where do you, Draw the lines there. How do you tip the scales? When he used the the thumbs on his show with Siskel, he bowed to Siskel's insistence that what viewers wanted, first and foremost, was to know whether they should go to see this movie. Is it good? Is it not good? Is it worth my time or not worth my time and money? The first thing they wanted to hear wasn't about the director's career. They just wanted to know, is it thumbs up, thumbs down? And yet... There's something overly simplistic about thumbs up and thumbs down, of course, or even the star system of three stars or two stars. And genre is a big part of this. We can say, yes, The Godfather and Lawrence of Arabia and Citizen Kane are four-star movies. That's an easy call. In a movie like High Noon or Unforgiven, really good westerns that transcend their genre might rise to that level as well. My guess is they got four stars. But what about a really good example of a genre movie that isn't setting out to be Lawrence of Arabia and isn't even trying to be Unforgiven or High Noon? Or what about a movie that's trying to be Lawrence of Arabia but falls a little short? Like, let's say, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Let's say it's just like Lawrence of Arabia, but it has a few plot holes. And you know what? Another movie like this, Godfather 3. Nobody thinks that's a four-star movie. It's obviously flawed, but it's ambitious, and it's for grown-ups. Ebert gave it three and a half stars. It has some good acting, some good scenes, a good story, if not quite as good in any of those aspects as The Godfather or Godfather 2. But even so, you could say it's a worthier picture than, say, Pretty Woman, right? Or Halloween, Rotten Tomatoes gives Halloween a 68%. A Nightmare on Elm Street, on the other hand, gets a 94%. Borat got 91%. The Martian, same thing, 91%. Are those movies that much better than Godfather 3? Did I say Halloween got 68%? I meant Godfather 3 got 68%. Halloween got 79%. Nightmare on Elm Street, 94, Borat, 91, The Martian, 91. Are those movies, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Borat, and The Martian, that much better than Godfather 3? Well, I guess they are, aren't they? But why? Why isn't an ambitious character-driven drama better than even a well-done, unambitious movie? Well, the answer is genre. I also cheated a little by misusing the word unambitious, I hope you understand what I mean here. Let me unpack it. Ebert says it this way, quote, I have quoted countless times a sentence by the critic Robert Warshaw, who wrote, A man goes to the movies. The critic must be honest enough to admit that he is that man. If my admiration for a movie is inspired by populism, politics, personal experience, generic conventions, or even lust, I must say so. I cannot walk out of a movie that engaged me and deny that it did. 
By generic conventions, he means conventions of genre. I have sympathy for genres, he said elsewhere, film noir in particular. I am almost capable of liking a movie simply for its black-and-white noir photography. I like science fiction. He adds that he likes westerns. And then he says this about genres. He says, quote, In connection with my affinity for genres, in the early days of my career, I said I rated a movie according to its generic expectations. Whatever that meant, it might translate like this. The star ratings are relative, not absolute. If a director is clearly trying to make a particular kind of movie, and his audiences are looking for a particular kind of movie, part of my job is judging how close he came to achieving his purpose. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean I'd give four stars to the best possible chainsaw movie. In my mind, four stars, and for that matter, one star, are absolute, not relative. They move outside generic expectations and triumph or fail on their own. End quote. So there you have it. He's not going to give a chainsaw movie the same rating as Citizen Kane, but he might give a really good science fiction movie like The Martian. Well, let me say something else here, too. We're going to be talking about Pride and Prejudice today, which is claimed by romance fiction as being a kind of OG novel, and we'll talk about why that is. Nobody says there's a, a ceiling on the stars you can give Pride and Prejudice. You don't have to stop at three and a half stars simply because... It fits the definition that people have given romance fiction. That is a four-star book, if anything is. It doesn't take a backseat to Madame Bovary or War and Peace or anything like that. So if the question is, can a science fiction movie be a four-star movie? The answer is, of course it can. Science fiction movies can have characters and stories and ideas and acting and cinematography and ambition and everything else that you would want from any classic movie. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is not a genre book that transcends its genre, that is really a literary fiction using the conventions of genre. I'm talking about a book that isn't trying to transcend its genre. It's comfortable within its patterns, its rules, its norms, and it's really good at it. And it does the job that it's setting out to do. A Disney movie for kids isn't as good, quote-unquote, as Citizen Kane. But the director isn't handed the script with the idea that if he or she doesn't make Citizen Kane, the movie will be a failure. The director is given the script with the idea that the movie shouldn't be boring, the jokes should land, the action should be lively, the acting should be good, and the ending should be happy. You can make a great two-and-a-half or three-star movie that gives audiences what they want. Execute well on what you're trying to do. Because not every moviegoer wants to go see Citizen Kane every time. Sometimes you're looking for something else. You want that kid's movie. You want something light and frothy. You want something that makes you cry in some uncomplicated way. You don't want to groan at bad acting or lousy dialogue. But maybe you'll overlook a few cliches in order to get the payoff. That's the spirit in which I want to talk about genre generic expectations, taking the books on their own terms. What do we want from these books? How do we know when they'll deliver? Now, don't get all persnickety and say, well, what if I want more from a book than what they're setting out to do? That's great. I'm glad that you do. Some people don't. And some people don't always. 
and that's fine with me. If people love reading medical thrillers, I say enjoy yourselves. Here's Ebert on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When it's, it's, this is his review from when that movie came out in 1974. <laughs> I really like Ebert's reviews. He says, quote, Now here's a grisly little item. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is as violent and gruesome as and blood-soaked as the title promises. It's also without any apparent purpose unless the creation of disgust and fright is a purpose. And yet... In its own way, the movie is some kind of weird, off-the-wall achievement. I can't imagine why anyone would want to make a movie like this, and yet it's well-made, well-acted, and all too effective. And he gave it two stars, that movie. The review is better than the star ranking, I think, when you read the his explanation. And by better here, I mean more informative. You get a better insight into what Ebert's thinking. Here's a couple of more paragraphs. I really love Roger Ebert, by the way, especially his written reviews. They always seem so so commonsensical and generous and wise. This is, again, from his review of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He says, quote, The movie's based on factual material, according to the narration that opens it, for all I know, that's true, although I can't recall having heard of these particular crimes, and the distributor provides no documentation. Not that it matters. A true crime movie like Richard Brooks's In Cold Blood, which studies the personalities and compulsions of two killers, dealt directly with documented material and was all the more effective for that. But the Texas Chainsaw Massacre could have been made up from whole cloth without any apparent difference. No motivation, no background, no speculation on causes is evident anywhere in the film. It's simply an exercise in terror. End quote. See what I mean? He's telling you about the experience of the movie, what it doesn't have and what it does. What's it trying to do? It's not trying to give you the personalities and compulsions of two killers. It's not a study in motivation or background or causes. It's just there to scare you and disgust you. He concludes the review like this, quote, Horror and exploitation films almost always turn a profit if they're brought in at the right price. So they provide a good starting place for the ambitious would-be filmmakers who can't get more conventional projects off the ground. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre belongs in a select company with Night of the Living Dead and Last House on the Left of films that are really a lot better than the genre requires. Not, however, that you'd necessarily enjoy seeing it. End quote. That is another great paragraph. Not that you'd necessarily enjoy seeing it. There are people who might read two sentences in a Western and think, nope, not for me. I don't want to spend time with this cowboy and this bad guy and this scenario and this setting. Again, I'm not talking about a Western that transcends its genre and has interesting characters and goes into the psychology and motivations of people. I'm talking about a Western that gives you what you want from a Western. White hat, black hat, showdown, duel, <laughs> out of town before sundown. Books that don't make you think too hard, as my grandfather used to put it. He read whatever my grandmother had just finished. He just picked up a book and read it. He was killing time with whatever. He didn't care enough to pick out a book at the library. He was happy with whatever my grandmother brought home. I'm just trying not to think too hard for a while, he'd say. And Ebert says, hey, this movie isn't going to make you think too much, but it's not trying to do that. It's trying to scare you. Want to be scared? And disgusted, 
go see it. It's very good at it. And it's better than other movies that are trying to do that. You don't want to be scared or disgusted. You don't have to go. You're not going to miss out on this year's best picture. You're not going to miss out on some grand cultural experience. Something that will change your life. You won't feel the absence of not seeing the deep human understanding that a movie like this or that other movies are going to serve up. This movie's not doing that. It's not trying to do that. Okay, so we have gone a long time in talking about genre in general without saying too much about romance fiction, but that's okay. We only have to do this once for the month. And I said uh, we'd have some bonus audio. We'll do that too. I hope my little explanation of genre was clear. We have a lot to keep track of here. There's literary fiction, which I'll go ahead and say is the highest form of fiction. That's the fiction for the grown-ups. That's mostly what we cover here at the History of Literature. That's where authors and readers are wrestling with the most complex aspects of the world, society, and the human condition. Great poetry is in here, too, and great drama, and I include great films as well. YMMV. Then there's another category, genre fiction, which is a close cousin. That's not the same thing, but it's nothing to sneer at. Sometimes it's called commercial fiction, too, in the trade. We don't look down our noses at writers of genre fiction or commercial fiction or at readers of it either. And some genre fiction is so good that it belongs in the same discussion as the best literary fiction. It also wrestles with the most difficult problems of our age or any other age. And some genre fiction isn't quite doing that, but it's not trying to do that either. It's trying to entertain or tell a good story or make people laugh or make people cry or excite people in some way. And it's really, really good at doing that, and it deserves praise for it. And if you're in the mood or have a taste for that kind of book, you'll like it better than most others in that genre because you want that experience, and the book delivers. Bravo. Enjoy. And then, of course, there are bad books in both genres. There are attempts at literary fiction that are boring or dumb or full of cliches. And there are genre fiction books that are poorly written or too slow or, or uh, cause you to laugh in places the author wasn't intending for you to laugh or they don't deliver the payoff that you want. Those are bad books. So we can compare and we can rank and we can rate, but we have to consider what the book is setting out to do. And consider that as part of our evaluation. Okay, let's get to the bonus audio. This came my way after our Hemingway episode. It's a little snippet of an interview with Orson Welles, who was asked asked about Hemingway. He said some things about their friendship and Hemingway's writing and Hemingway's death that I thought I would pass along. So let's hear that now. It's a little longer than the snippets I usually play, but Orson Welles is so entertaining, I thought I would just turn things over to him. It's about five minutes or so. So let's take a quick break, hear Mr. Welles talking about Mr. Hemingway, then come back with our look at genre number one, romance fiction. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? He was a very close friend of mine. Was he? Yeah. Uh, I knew him on and off for many years. We had a very strange relationship. He was... Uh, I never belonged to his clan because I made fun of him. And nobody ever made fun of Hemingway. But I did. And he took it, but he didn't like me to do it in front of the the club. We met in a projection of a movie which he had made and which he wanted me to narrate. And uh, he had written the commentary. This is many years ago. And uh, we hadn't seen each other. This is a dark projection room. And I was reading the text. And I said, is it really necessary to say this? Do you think wouldn't it be better to just see the picture? And things like that. And then I heard this growl from the darkness, you know. Some damn who runs an art theater trying to tell me how to write narration and so on. So I began to camp it up. I thought, if that's what I'm dealing with, I said, Oh, Mr. Hemingway, you think because you're so big and strong and have hair on your chest that you've got a bullet in you, see? So this great figure stood up and swung at me. So I swung at him. Now you have the picture of the Spanish Civil War being projected on a screen and these two heavy figures swinging away at each other and missing most of the time. <laughs> the lights came up and we looked at each other and burst into laughter and became great friends. Not a friendship that was renewed every year, but over many years at different times. And I saw him in the last year in which he was still entirely in control of himself, again, quite quite a lot. But we never discussed bullfighting because we, uh, except on the subject of Ordonez, we disagreed profoundly on too many points. And he thought he invented it, you know. (laughs) He really did think he invented it. Yes, he, of course, maybe he did. His book, of course, is still it's a, a magnificent. And it's a superb book. He's a yeah. he's a great, great, great artist. I, I, mm. I, 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 my my admiration for. I was enormously fond of him as a man too, because the thing you never get from his books was his humor. Yes, there's hardly a word of humor in a Hemingway book, because he's so tense and solemn and dedicated to what is true and good and all that. Mm. But when he relaxed, he was riotously funny. Mm. And that was the level that I loved about him. And I, uh, I, I, I enjoyed being with him. I used to go out and keep him company when he went duck shooting in Venice in the, uh, in the, in the autumns. I have many strange memories of him like that. And I was enormously fond of him. But as an artist, I think that it's really, <clears throat> there are very few important writers, with the exception of Novikov, who, uh, are, have not been influenced to some degree by him. I think it's impossible to write the same and yet, as we did before he wrote. 
And yet, do you not sense now that he's become, over the past ten years, an old-fashioned sort of figure? He's come back again, I think. Yeah. My hunch is, I don't know in England, of course, because these things <clears throat> vary in different countries. In America, he was uh, in total eclipse for the last ten years, but he's, uh, the sun is rising again, mm. uh, critically for him, a little bit. Mm. Yeah. He's been dead long enough. I, I think it's mainly true, isn't it, that that uh, writers do go into uh, total eclipse right after their death. Yes. I wonder why that is, but it seems to be true. He was ultimately, of course, a tragic figure, wasn't he? I mean, in that his end was co complete counterpoint to all that he'd stood for and written about. He was sick, he was sick. But he did talk about suicide, you know. His father uh, killed himself with a gun in the same way. Yes. And he talked to me about it several times. Really? In a sort of obsessive way. Yes. Uh, but he was, uh, he was a sick man. He wasn't merely a... He was, uh, he was not well mentally. You know. yes. He's not to be judged as himself. In other words, he didn't... The Hemingway we are talking about did not choose his death. Yes. He might have, but he wasn't that man. Yes. Okay, romance novels. People read them like crazy. Women read more fiction than men do, and they definitely read more of these books. You know what I mean, right? When I'm talking about the mass market romance novels, you've seen these books at the grocery store or the library or the garage sale titles with the famous titles, covers with the famous Fabio or one of his imitators, men with no shirt on, women in what look to be like prom dresses, titles like Six Degrees of Scandal or Wild in Love. You can pick up any of them and just start reading. Embracing Destiny, West of January, and off we go. The names of the authors are prominent on these covers. A lot of them say something about Highlanders. <laughs> That's at least my impression. Wild Texas Rose is another title, but there are others too. Books that look a lot more like literary fiction, contemporary literary fiction. Kind of a cool cover. Not every romance book has a shirtless Fabio-looking guy on the cover. So let's see if we can define what we mean. Actually, we're going to go through a definition of romance novels first, then talk about the history of the romance novel, and finally talk a little about the ones people buy and enjoy the most. So the definition. First, we come to the definition. That's easy, right? Romance novels are about romance. <laughs> Well, okay, but what isn't? Is Anna Karenina a romance novel or War and Peace? There are romances in there, too. If we're talking about the presence of love or relationships, you could include just about any novel. Thomas Hardy's books have romance in them. Haruki Murakami, Ulysses. That's got romance, but that's clearly not what we mean, right? What book doesn't have romance in it, though? Maybe Kafka? Where can we draw the lines? In this, I was helped by an essay by Jenny Cruzy, a romance novelist whose books don't have Fabio on the cover. She's not cranking them out for Harlequin or Avon. She's also 71 years old now, which astonished me. I think of her as being about 40. Her real name is Jennifer Smith, which I didn't know. She's a bestseller who was working for, well, let's see, she's written 20 or so romance novels. She's smart as hell, and she was part of an effort to define what a romance novel is for the Romance Writers of America Association. The title of her essay is I Know It When I See It, which is, of course, the famous Potter Stewart 
phrase about pornography, and has come to stand for this kind of vague feeling we have when something is hard to define. Easy cases on either end are easy. Ulysses is not a romance novel except in some theoretical, hey, I could make an argument for this kind of way. And Jennifer Cruz's books, The Cinderella Deal and Anyone But You and Trust Me on This, or even more, the books of Nora Roberts and Danielle Steele and works like The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks, which we heard at the beginning, definitely are romance novels. But that doesn't mean it's easy to define. Is a rena- It's like pornography. Is a Renaissance painting of a nude woman pornography? Well, we don't think so. But if you define pornography with the wrong definition, let's say your definition is people with no clothes on or anything that shows the sexual genitalia of men and women, you could end up closing down museums. You have to find a different definition, one that works. And so Jenny Cruzy, I always call her Jenny, but maybe I should call her Jennifer because we've never met, but she calls herself Jenny here and there. So anyway, she set out to define the romance genre because the romance writers of America asked her to. They were becoming a more professional organization. This was 20 years ago. But who was supposed to be in it? When they gave out an award, what books qualified? They needed a clean, one-sentence definition that they could use. They didn't want to exclude any real romance novels, but they did want to exclude books that violated the basic assumptions of the genre. But first, you have to agree on what those basic assumptions are. However, as Jenny Cruzy put it, the genre is huge and varied. So the definition couldn't be something like, books about a man and woman in love, because it could definitely be about love between two women or two men, for example. It shouldn't be books in which love conquers all, or books that celebrate sex as a healthy part of a loving relationship, because romance novels can have different value systems, too. There might be one that focuses on Christian love, or love within a marriage, or adultery. Any definition of romance can't exclude a book based on family values or any particular belief or lifestyle. It's too varied. The genre is too varied for that. Books that end in marriage. Some people proposed that. No way. That's not what we consider to be an essential part of the genre. Not anymore, anyway. How about books that condemn adultery? No, that doesn't work. Some do not condemn adultery. Sometimes that might be something that's valued within the context of a book. The tent is not big enough in a definition like that to fit all the creatures inside. How about happy endings? So many romance novels end with happy endings. On the other hand, a lot of great romances don't have a happy ending, and many people say that the greatest romance of the 20th century is Gone with the Wind. And why would the romance writers of America want to exclude what might be the greatest American romance novel of the 20th century? But there did have to be something about the ending, Jenny Cruzy thought. The story had to be in there, and the ending in the one-sentence definition. That was what her working group decided. The story had to be a love story. Not a story with a love subplot, but a story about love. The, the two people who are in love their relationship with one another, their struggle to make love work. That must be central to the romance novel. That's the main conflict. The conflict of the book should be the love story. The protagonists of the book 
should be the protagonists of the love story. The climax of the book should resolve the love story. You can see where where once you break the, the book down into its elements, then you match it up with, well, is, it, is the love story doing this work? We're going to rule out a book like Moby Dick, where you could point to the love that Ishmael had for Queequeg and try to shoehorn it into the romance category. But this definition would say, no, no. Melville can win his prizes somewhere else. The climax is not resolving the love that Ishmael had for Queequeg. That's not the main conflict here. It's about the obsession of this sea captain. It's not about the uh, subplot or the scene that happens between Ishmael and Queequeg. So some people tried to be uh, more specific in their definition. There's always a tendency when you're defining things, how specific can we get? How general can we get? Is it satisfying? Where do we land on the specificity here? And some still do. Some say, well, romance novels, they have to include sex. But there are plenty of romance novels where the couple does no more than kiss. So that doesn't work. Notably, what's called chick lit does not necessarily qualify as a romance in this definition with our focus on story since the main story of a chick-lit book might be the protagonist's career or her relationship with her friends or her family. Some say escapism should be part of the definition, a love story that lets readers escape. The phone never rings, the baby never cries, and the rent is never overdue. That's uh, another one that was rejected as being a little too specific. I kind of like Nora Roberts's definition. Nora Roberts is one of the, the queens of the genre. I like her definition, but you know what? I'm going to save that for the end. Nora Roberts sells a zillion books, by the way. She and Danielle Steele have sold a billion books between the two of them. Roberts has written 220 books and sold more than 500 million of them. These are these numbers are just hard to get your mind around. Danielle Steele, who writes about rich people in exotic locales, has written 180 or so books and has sold even more, 800 million copies. By comparison, Stephen King has sold about 350 million. J.K. Rowling has sold about 500 million. She's behind Danielle Steele. These are ridiculous numbers for all of them. Barbara Cartland is another Romance novelist, 723 books and close to a billion books sold. Who's ahead of those two, Danielle Steele and Barbara Cartland? It's Agatha Christie and Shakespeare and not many others. Maybe no one. Simenon and Enid Blyton and Sidney Sheldon and Dr. Seuss are in the running. Some of these get a little bit hard to measure. Tolstoy's actually up there and Horatio Alger and R.L. Stein of the Goosebumps series and some uh, manga writers and some other romance novelists like Jackie Collins. But okay, let's get back to the definition. Cruzy's committee said a romance is a love story. She says it took them weeks to get those six words and they were tempted to leave things there. It was too hard to add anything else. But then they thought, no, no, because Anna Karenina is a problem here. Anna Karenina would fit that definition. A love story. All of the issues of love are front and center. The relationship is front and center of that novel. But nobody thinks, spoiler alert, nobody thinks that a romance heroine is going to throw herself 
under a train in despair at the end. That's a good ending for a novel, for literary fiction, but it's not one that's going to be marketed or read as a romance novel. Romance novels must have a happy ending, some said, except what is a happy ending? Does it mean the two get married or that they're at least together as a couple? And some writers said, hang on, what if I want the ending to be bittersweet? What if the couple has struggled and they've encountered some kind of great tragedy and I don't want to tack on some Disney ending where all the people get paired off and go live happily ever after? What if this isn't a book where everyone lives happily ever after and yet it's satisfying nevertheless? And yet... It's a serious romance novel. That's my intention for it. I just don't have that as my ending. So, happy ending had to be defined a little bit. And Jenny Cruzy, this really is a good essay. You should read it. If you read it, you'll like Jenny Cruzy afterwards, I think. Jenny Cruzy had a phrase she liked that she called innate emotional justice. In romance novels, good people are rewarded and bad people are punished. She looked at mysteries and said, look at that. Here's a genre. It's doing the same thing. Good guys risk and struggle. Murderers get punished. There's a sense of fair play. And we read these books because we want to see that get rewarded. Western, same thing. We want to know there's a balance in the universe. There's fairness in the cosmos. And our novels aren't going to upend that. They Genre novels, I mean, they won't say the world is pointless or the human response should be despair, but there's some closure that brings about something satisfying for the reader. As she put it, quote, no endings where the protagonists sacrifice for one another and end up noble and alone, no downers with the hero and the heroine wordlessly staring at a cockroach scuttling across the cracked linoleum of their tenement, and definitely no finales with dead protagonists unless they're ghosts having a terrific time in the afterlife. The problem, that's end quote, the problem was that nobody liked the phrase, a romance is a love story that ends in emotional justice, since that was too close to moral judgment. If the protagonists are both sinners you might say that their deaths were a form of emotional justice. So they switched to emotionally satisfying, which was less of a values-loaded word than justice, except you could still have two people dead on the floor with the cockroaches. With emotionally satisfying, that might be emotionally satisfying too. So they added the word optimistic. And in the end, this was their recommendation to the committee. Quote, a romance is a love story that has an emotionally satisfying optimistic ending, end quote. This is pretty good. It goes a long way toward defining something that's very hard to define. She tested it against some great works and found that it held up. It did what she was hoping that it would do. It left in Pride and Prejudice and Gone with the Wind, but it ruled out Madame Bovary. Jenny Cruzy ended her essay with a look ahead to the next project, which was to define the Romance Writers of America's slogan. And she proposed, quote, we're not polyester-wearing, sexually frustrated, middle-aged frumps and geeks, end quote. <laughs> her tongue was in her cheek when she said that, of course, but we can see what kind of stereotypes people have. Romance novels, people write them, people read them, people buy them, the publishing world takes them seriously, they bring in money, 
And yet, there's a kind of dismissal of them. Part of this is no doubt misogynistic. We're much more likely to give a science fiction book or a crime novel credit for being something serious and worthy of our time, even when they're sticking within the limits of their genre. We're much more likely to take it seriously, or you'll see it, say, reviewed in the New York Times book review. But it's hard to say why exactly that is except that men are more likely to read and write those books. 90% of romance novels are bought by women, by the way. But in any case, how did all this get started? So we come to the history portion. If we use our definition, our Jenny Cruzy definition, a love story with an emotionally satisfying ending, plus optimism, we can find something close to that in ancient Greece. There's stretches of prose little narratives that have been handed down to us that look like uh, fiction that would fit that definition. But we're really talking about the English novels of the 18th and 19th centuries with Samuel Richardson and his Pamela leading the way and then Jane Austen and the Brontes coming after. Walter Scott confused things a bit by calling his stories romances, which is not quite the same thing. His definition of a romance was, quote, a fictitious narrative in prose or verse, the interest of which turns upon marvelous and uncommon incidents, end quote. I'd like to start my history somewhere else, though, which is in the mass market romance novels, which really didn't get started until the 1930s. Two men in Great Britain, Gerald Rusgrove Mills and Charles Boone, got together in 1908 to start a publishing house, and they published general fiction and really just general books. They published works by Jack London and Hugh Walpole and educational textbooks and socialist tracts and travel guides and craft books and Shakespeare. They sold mysteries, whatever they thought would sell. And then in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, they saw that people needed an escape Detective books, crime novels, thrillers, that kind of thing, and romances. They sold them in a brown binding that was like a brand, and they were affordable to the masses, and the masses were ready. They gobbled them up. Harlequin was formed to distribute the Mills and Boone books in North America, and eventually Harlequin bought Mills and Boone in the, 1970, in the 1970s. Harlequin has its critics... Some say their books are too lowbrow and formulaic, which is probably true, but it's also why they're successful, one would imagine. Sometimes predictability is what you want, or a little variation in the predictability. Feminist critics had a more valid criticism. The books could sometimes lap into misogyny, including rape fantasies, and they could lead to a damaging view of the female body and female autonomy and healthy sexual identity. Some say the books are too raunchy or immoral. Some say they create an unrealistic view of relationships. Luckily, Harlequin books are not the only source of romance novels. Americans started publishing under the Avon imprint in the 1970s, and these soon became known as bodice rippers books that followed the principles into the bedroom. These were criticized too, of course, but with a book like Dark Fires by Rosemary Rogers, which sold two million copies in its first three months. I don't think Avon cared too much about the critics. 
They were too busy cashing their checks. These are the books you might think of with the covers. Scantily clad men and women, women in distress, rescued by the hero, sometimes after the hero himself had placed her in danger. These were sexually graphic books. A lot of them followed a formula. Here's an editor at Pocket Books describing them. Quote, Women will pick up a romance novel knowing what to expect, and this foreknowledge of the reader is very important. When the hero and heroine meet and fall in love, maybe they don't know they're in love, but the reader does. Then a conflict will draw them apart, but you know in the end they'll be back together, and preferably married or planning to be by page 192, end quote. In 1980, a newspaper article called Romance Novels Publishing's Answer to the Big Mac Quote, they are juicy, cheap, predictable, and devoured in stupefying quantities by legions of loyal fans, end quote. They were also often historical. I mean, they had historical settings that was common even then. The Scottish Highlands always strikes me as the most common of these settings, but I haven't ever seen that quantified. These novels, too, have been criticized. The Avon books, the women are too weak, the men are too strong. There's an obsession with virgins and virginity that's unhealthy and a double standard. The women are too passive. The men are saviors. Luckily, things have changed. New publishers sprang up and new authors and contemporary issues and sensibilities began to find their way into these books. Now there's a diversity of viewpoints and lifestyles and attitudes that better reflects today's broad readership. I'm sure there are still plenty of books to criticize, but it's hard to criticize the genre as a whole on political grounds. There are too many thoughtful people in too many uh, working in it in too many different directions. Which brings me to our final category. What do people buy and enjoy the most in these romance novels? Which romance novels are the best? And I know what you're going to say. Well, Jack, you make a good case for this genre, and I would like to give it a try. Where should I start? I wish I could answer that question. It's so specific to the reader, and there are so many choices that it's hard to know where to begin. Do you want the old-school bodice ripper? Nobody calls them that now, by the way. It's sort of viewed as offensive within the genre. But do you want a formulaic book to see what those are like? Do you want something set in the past? Do you want characters who are more modern in their outlook and in the trappings of their lives? Do you want humor? What is your desire for desire? What's your taste for the erotic nature of romance? Do you want lots of sex or none? Do you want strong women? Is that required? Do you want lesbians, people of color, rich people jet-setting to some exotic locale, or a cowboy who swings by in a pickup truck and asks the Houston waitress out for a drink? You can see what I mean here. There are a lot of choices, and it's not just what's good, but what am I in the mood for? What's going to hit me in the sweet spot? What will push the buttons that I want to be pushed? But I do want to be helpful. So I took a run through a lot of best of lists and recommendations from places like Cosmopolitan and Glamour and Amazon and Goodreads and publishing magazines and the New York Times and end of the year lists and so on. And guess what? I found that the lists were very different with a few exceptions. You rarely find a book from 2015 on a list that's put out in 2020. The books in 2020 are from 2019 and 2020. In other words, if you want a contemporary romance, you don't really want the protagonists to be excited about their new fax machine, right? 
They'll have smartphones and apps and talk like people who know what online dating is. They won't stop and ask for directions because their cars will have GPS and so on. We churn out new books because our world changes and people want to read about it. They want to read about the current world. So don't worry about a book that came out in 2012 that you might have missed. Chances are there's a good one in 2020 that's just as good and even more satisfying because it will be about your world now today. I did say there were a few exceptions to that. One is you might take a look at a Danielle Steele book or a Barbara Cartland book or a Jackie Collins or a Nora Roberts from whatever era, the 80s or the 90s or the aughts, because if someone sells that many books, there must be something worth reading there. Or at the very least, you know they'll probably be very readable. And you can imagine the hundreds of millions of people who have gone before you and you can see what they all found compelling. And it will maybe help you understand the mindset of a woman or a man, but 90% probably a woman, statistically. You can understand a woman from the 1970s or 80s or 90s, and you can think, oh, right, of course they like this because this is how they thought and this is what they were looking for. Or you could think, what the hell were you guys thinking? That's a good project when you have some titans of the genre like Barbara Cartland or Stephen King or Agatha Christie. Dive in, see what everyone is, what all the fuss has been about. And then the other exception are some OGs. There are some classics of the genre. These are the works that appear over and over on the best of lists and the my favorite romance novels list and the what romance novel should I read list. I'd say out of 10 such lists, these books appear on at least seven. Number one, Pride and Prejudice. That was probably 10 for 10. Unless the list is specifically about contemporary romance novels, Pride and Prejudice is almost always there. Sense and Sensibility is the other Austin book that often lands on these lists, but P&P is number one by a mile. And you know how I feel about that book. It's definitely worth reading and reading again, and why not just read it again? We have an episode on Pride and Prejudice somewhere in our archives. You can also throw in Jane Eyre while you're at it. That's another uh, History of Literature approved book. We've talked about it several times, and it is often on these lists as well. Here's another one you'll often find, The Thornbirds by Colleen McCullough. I remember this one from my youth, mainly because of the miniseries. This one is a bestseller by an Australian woman, the best-selling book in Australian history, in fact. It's a sweeping family saga about dreams and struggles and forbidden love in the Australian outback. Gone with the Wind is another one frequently mentioned on these lists. Also, more recently, Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Is that how you pronounce it? Gabald, I don't know, Gabaldon? Gabaldon, G-A-B-A-L-D-O-N. These books are famous for their adaptations, too. Gone with the Wind is, of course, the story of the American Civil War romance between Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. Outlander is a series. I think there are eight of them so far, with the ninth one almost finished, or maybe it just came out. She's an American author, and the books are sort of historical romance science fiction with a 20th century British nurse who time travels to 18th century Scotland. Two historical romance books there. Gone with the Wind and the Outlander series. Anna East Nin is sometimes listed on, on these uh, best of romance novels, but not often. Anne Rice sometimes appears under her pseudonym A.N. Rokalar. 
And John Green is up there for his book, The Fault in Our Stars. The Time Traveler's Wife is a recent edition that makes it onto a lot of lists. And The Notebook seems to be headed for the Outlander slash Thornbirds category, maybe a notch under Pride and Prejudice, but included on a lot of lists. Fifty Shades of Grey counts as a romance novel, if that's your cuppa. I don't know if I need to explain all of these books. You, They're very famous books. You probably already know what they're about. Maybe you've already read them. So look for what you think you'd like best. Do you want vampire huntresses, LGBTQ protagonists, time-traveling warriors, paranormal, urban, rural, young, old? They're all out there. I'm going to give Nora Roberts the last word when she was asked what a romance novel was. Here's what she said, quote, the books are about the celebration of falling in love and emotion and commitment and all of those things we really want. End quote. All of those things we really want. That's the right attitude for a romance novelist to have and a reader of romance novels, too. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Thank you so much for joining me today. Romance novels, they are there for you when you need them, right? Check into a and b sometime. They'll probably be sitting there on the shelves. Or just grab one on your way to check out your groceries. Or maybe you already have a bunch of your own. My grandmother used to have them, and I was astonished to find that Judy Bloom had written one, and I read it in secret. It was pretty racy. Definitely not tales of a fourth grade nothing. Super fudged lady was writing for the grown-ups. I should read that one again. I'd probably enjoy it since I love Judy Bloom. In any case, I hope you are enjoying the world and full of love. We'll be back next Monday with, oh, maybe some Mike Palindrome. We have a fun one with him coming up. And next Thursday, we'll do some more genres, as we will do throughout this month, I think. We're a part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate Network, www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.